On December 23, 1942, Admiral Francois Darlan, recently appointed High Commissioner of Vichy France, hosted a luncheon for Allied political leaders in Algiers. Darlan, ever the opportunist, saw it as a chance to display his formidable presence to his new friends from Britain and the United States. A month earlier, Darlan had surrendered after an Allied invasion of Algiers. But now, he treated the invading army as guests, not enemies. He wanted to give them the impression that, truce or no truce, he was still in control. As lunch was served, Darlan turned to American General Mark Clark and American diplomat Robert Murphy and uttered, Tomorrow the Axis Press will say I gave this luncheon because a gun was pointed at my head. Clark replied, If the rest of the luncheons were as good as this, I would get my gun out every week. But despite his hospitality, Clark knew that Darlan was going to be a problem if he remained in North Africa. He told the recently deposed leader that the best solution to his problem would be to leave the country. And to his surprise, the admiral was receptive to the proposition. He told Clark, You know, there are four plots in existence to assassinate me. Suppose one is successful. What will you Americans do then? Darlan handed Murphy a list of his possible successors. Murphy looked up at him and detected the worry in his sad blue eyes. His premonition would be right. Darlan died the next day. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on French admiral and controversial political figure Francois Darlan. We'll dive into his rise to power in war-torn France and the controversial political agreements that led to his assassination by French resistance member Fernand Bonnier de la Chapelle on December 24, 1942. This week, we'll explore Bonnier's journey to join the French resistance after Germany invaded Paris in 1940. We'll also examine Admiral Darlan's rise to political influence in France and how his leadership during World War II led to his murder. Next week, we'll explore the aftermath of the assassination. As we unpack the complex politics behind it, we'll discuss some of the conspiracy theories that have surrounded Darlan's unexpected demise. On June 14, 1940, Germany stormed Paris. Within weeks, Nazi flags decorated the entire city. France was on its knees and subservient to Hitler's agenda. 
Germany had declared war on Poland in September 1939 and were on the move through the rest of Europe. As the Germans arrived, Prime Minister Paul Reynaud was determined to keep up the fight. French military leaders, like Admiral Francois Darlan, believed in the beginning that fighting was the only means for survival. But he realized quickly that the fight was a lost cause. In order to save French lives, Darlan believed that it was in their best interest to collaborate with the Nazis. Darlan was not alone in this sentiment. Many others within the political elite, like World War I hero and French ambassador Philippe Pétain, thought an accord with Hitler was the only option to ensure France's future. On June 22nd, France signed an armistice deal with Germany. By July 9th, the French parliament voted to dissolve itself and give the well-respected Pétain full executive power. With Pétain as their puppet, Germany now had full control of northern France, along with two million French soldiers as prisoners of war. Pétain established a new capital a few hours away from Paris in the small town of Vichy, which was known more as a vacation destination than a seat of political power. In time, Vichy became shorthand for France's alliance with Germany. But not every French citizen was willing to cooperate with the Vichy regime. Other political officials, like French Brigadier General Charles de Gaulle, became leaders of a resistance that saw Vichy's relationship with Germany as treason. Inspired by the uncompromising resistance, young men like 18-year-old Bonnier de la Chapelle decided to join in the fight. Bonnier would play a major role in unseating one of Vichy's important voices, Francois Darlan, which would change the entire course of the war for France. Fernand Bonnier de la Chapelle was born on November 4, 1922, in the French colony of Algiers. When Bonnier was a child, his parents divorced and he was sent to study in Paris. As a youth, Bonnier was sensitive and fragile. He was prone to sickness, but he was also impulsive and eager to engage in passionate arguments with his friends. When 18-year-old Bonnier witnessed the fall of France to the Nazi army, he knew he had to defend his homeland. Bonnier took part in a student demonstration against the Germans at the Arc du Triomphe. The protest inspired him to do more to defend his country. Romantic visions of wartime adventures filled his head. Bonnier left Paris for London to join the resistance group Free French, led by government leaders who were forced into exile after the German invasion. He admired its leader, Charles de Gaulle, but Bonnier never made it to London. Realizing the Germans occupied northern France, the only way to get there was through Gibraltar. Instead, he illegally crossed the Free Zone, which divided occupied France and the unoccupied territory of Algiers. Now out of Nazi control, Bonnier reunited with his father, who was working as a journalist for the Algerian Dispatch. Through his father's connections, the 18-year-old Bonnier met with many who were disillusioned by their country's leaders. A major target was Admiral Francois Darlan who was head of Vichy's military and executing German orders with zeal. Bonnier joined the French resistance and immediately found his calling. Like Bonnier, 
Many of the members had grand visions of sacrifice. They saw themselves as heroes waiting for their opportunity for combat. Bonnier worked as a liaison between the Resistance's main headquarters and one of its leaders, Henri Dastier de la Vigerie. Tall and thin, with piercing dark eyes, Henri Dastier was a controversial figure accused of holding fascist viewpoints. He fled to Algeria in 1941. In reality, Dostier believed that France should be an independent nation and opposed the German invasion. He was also a royalist who thought democracy made good government leaders corrupt. He believed France should return to its royal heritage and be governed as a monarchy. In his opinion, the future leader of France should be the Count of Paris, Henri VI, who was fighting with them in North Africa. Bonnier had similar beliefs. He saw the political heads in Vichy France as submissive to Hitler. He thought France needed a strong leader who would stand up against fascism, someone like Henri VI. While he was in North Africa, Bonnier witnessed French soldiers carry out anti-Semitic orders with fervent regularity. These orders were coming from Admiral Darlan, who was deputy leader in all of French Africa. It appeared that Bonnier and his friends in the resistance were making no progress in their mission to combat Darlan's vicious leadership. Resistance leaders eventually received the break they were waiting for when they were approached by American and British allied forces in October 1942. America had just joined the war a year earlier, and they saw North Africa as a perfect launchpad for future invasions of Europe. The first step was taking control of Algeria and Morocco. General Mark Clark and American diplomat Robert Murphy approached Henri Dastier to help plan the invasion. A month later, on November 8, 1942, Allied forces launched their invasion. Bonnier and his comrades helped behind the scenes, securing bridges and shorelines. Not much is known of Bonnier's exact role in the invasion, but he saw close friends gunned down in cold blood. The chaos of combat was not what he envisioned when he left Paris two years earlier. The invasion, known as Operation Torch, was a complete success for the Allies and the French resistance, bringing Darlan and the rest of Vichy France no other choice but to surrender. This was a turning point that marked the end of diplomatic relations between North Africa and Vichy France. Bonnier de la Chapelle and his fellow resistance fighters went around town that evening singing the French national anthem, La Marseillaise, and shooting their guns in the air. They decorated the streets with posters mocking Admiral Darlan and other Vichy French leaders. Their enthusiasm was palpable as locals joined in on the celebration. After Operation Torch, the Allied forces were in full control of the region. However, for Bonnier and the resistance, the fight was only beginning. As the Allies gained their footing in the region, Bonnier perceived Darlan as submissive to their commands, something he had seen two years earlier when Darlan was collaborating with Nazi Germany. He was willing to sell France to the highest bidder to save his own skin. If they wanted to keep Algiers under Allied control, Darlan would have to go. 
Up next, we'll talk more about Francois Darlan and his political influence during World War II. Now, back to the story. 20-year-old Bonnier de la Chapelle and his friends in the French Resistance played a significant role in the Allied invasion of North Africa on November 8, 1942. After the success of Operation Torch, Vichy's power in the region was rapidly slipping away, giving U.S. and British troops time to strategize their next invasions into southern Europe. The power structure had been altered, and Bonnier was an eyewitness to it. And perhaps the most significant figure in this new environment was Vichy Commander-in-Chief, Admiral Darlan. Francois Darlan was born on August 7, 1881, in Nirac, France. His father was a politician and one-time minister who came from a long line of naval officers. At the age of 21, Darlan followed the family tradition when he graduated from the French Naval Academy in 1902. When World War I broke out in 1914, 33-year-old Darlan fought at the Battle of Verdun, where he transported long-range naval guns for Navy commander and future president of Vichy France, Philippe Pétain. For almost 10 months, the battle raged. In the end, nearly 400,000 men from both sides lost their lives. But the horrors of war had created a formidable bond between Darlan and Pétain, which would become a significant force in both their lives. After World War I ended in 1918, France was decimated, but Darlan was doing better than ever. He was awarded three medals for bravery and honor. Once the war ended, he was assigned to the Navy warship Joan of Arc. In 1926, at the age of 45, he was promoted to captain. Darlan's career in the French Navy is what he always dreamt of. He had influence, but most importantly, he was honoring the family name. Darlan preached allegiance and sacrifice on his ships. Known as ruthless and shrewd, he never wavered from the belief that a ship must be grounded by an admiral's strict supervision and, above all else, loyalty. In 1936, the opportunity of a lifetime came when a fellow citizen of Nirac, Georges Legu, was named the head of the Ministry of Marine, which controlled the Navy and the colonies. He immediately looked to Darlan, who he respected, to head his military cabinet. As military cabinet leader to the ministry, Darlan acted as a liaison to the Admiralty and members of Parliament. The job required someone to navigate both the political world and the battlefield. Legu thought that Darlan would be perfect for the job. Described as sociable and an entertaining conversationalist, Legu felt Darlan was the right person for the job because of his experience in the Navy's various branches. Most significantly, he believed in Darlan's loyalty and unflinching discipline. 59-year-old Darlan had become the most powerful man in the French Navy by the time German tanks rolled into Paris in June 1940. But in wartime, decisions are quick and often impetuous. Darlan was dubious of French Prime Minister Paul Reynaud, who kept waffling back and forth between resisting the Germans 
and submitting to their demands. But Francois Darlan was much more resolute when it came to protecting the French naval fleet. He would rather destroy his own ships than hand them over to the enemy. And he was just as determined to keep his fleet out of British hands. Even though Britain was their ally, Darlan vowed that the fleet will belong to no country but France. Once the Germans gained the upper hand, Darlan ordered his ships to flee to French colonial ports, to British ports, or even to destroy themselves rather than surrender to Germany. But when he arrived in Bordeaux on Saturday, June 15th, Darlan began to warm up to the idea of an armistice deal. This was solely because the French government promised to reject any deal that required them to hand over the naval fleet. Darlan's ships were safe. However, while he was there, he witnessed the government rapidly fracturing. Soon, he would be forced to pick a side. Reynaud's indecision led him to lose support within his cabinet. On the evening of June 16th, the French ministers voted in support of an armistice deal, believing it was the only solution to protect France. Reynaud was forced to resign. He was replaced by the much more steadfast Philippe Pétain. Under Pétain, France was willing to negotiate with the Germans, but they still refused to hand over their naval fleet. To drive this point home, Pétain named Darlan as the new Minister of Marine. On June 21, 1940, Germany acquiesced. They issued another armistice proposal that let France keep their ships as long as they were returned to their peacetime ports where they could be disarmed under German and Italian supervision. Under the deal, the remaining French ships would only be used for coastal patrol and minesweeping. But most importantly, the Germans promised they would not claim ownership of Darlan's fleet. On June 22nd, the France-Germany armistice was signed. Pétain's government established its new headquarters in the tranquil town of Vichy, 30 miles from the boundary between occupied and unoccupied France. From the fourth floor of Vichy's Hotel du Parc, Pétain and his cabinet turned their focus to the future of France itself. He began a new set of policies known as the National Revolution. The purpose of the National Revolution was to reclaim an old social order from France's past, based on the values of work, family, and patriotism. This flew in the face of pressure from German leaders to outlaw displays of French nationalism. Pétain superficially endorsed Hitler's new vision of Europe, but when he spoke to his citizens by radio, he articulated his new vision for France with engaging stories filled with national pride. The French people trusted that Pétain would make sound decisions for the betterment of the nation. Darlan shared the same values as Pétain, and he was still faithful to his war commander. Although Germany had promised not to take what remained of his fleet, he was now worried that the British would try to seize it. British leaders like Winston Churchill felt Vichy France needed to be sent a message. Side with the Germans, and you'll have to reckon with the British. On July 3, 1940, Churchill ordered an attack on a French naval squadron at Merce el Kabir, a port town in Algeria. Known as Operation Catapult, this attack marked the end of Anglo-French relations. 
A total of 1,297 French officers and crew members were killed. The attack surprised the Vichy government and left them in a state of confusion. When Darlan reached Vichy headquarters late on the afternoon of July 3rd, he was enraged. It was a momentary victory for the British, but in the long term, it was a strategic failure. The French fleet was now out for blood. Darlan demanded retribution, but reason won over vengeance. Instead of retaliating with a full-scale attack, Pétain issued a standard air raid on British-held Gibraltar, tempering the hostile relationship between the two nations. In the aftermath of the attack, German officials allowed the French to restart their naval operations. The Vichy government was defending not just France, but also their colonial ports in North Africa and West Africa. And soon, they'd have another chance to prove their worth. On November 8, 1942, toward the end of America's first full year in the war, the U.S. and Britain launched another attack on Vichy French forces in North Africa, known as Operation Torch. As commander of French military operations, Darlan sent 125,000 of his best men to meet U.S. troops on the shores of Algeria and Morocco. However, Darlan soon realized his forces were overpowered. Over the course of a single day, the Americans seized control of French ships and military strongholds aided by the French resistance. As the last tank reached the sands of Tangier, Darlan recognized that the alliance between the U.S. and Britain was a formidable force. A force more powerful than Vichy and the Axis. The only means of survival was a ceasefire. By the evening, the city surrendered, leaving Vichy government officials seeking escape. Immediately after the battle ended, Darlan met with American diplomat Robert Murphy and American General Mark Clark in Algiers to negotiate the surrender. Darlan started off by stating, For the last two years, I have preached to my men in the Navy and to the nation unity behind Pétain. I cannot now deny my oath. Despite his strong words, the Americans believed Darlan could be persuaded for the right price. In exchange for a complete ceasefire in the region, the U.S. appointed Darlan High Commissioner of North Africa. Eisenhower thought the opportunistic admiral could be a vital asset for the Allied cause. If he cooperated, Darlan could offer stability within the region and ensure a peaceful transition. But to resistance fighters like Bonnier de la Chapelle, it appeared that Darlan was ready to sell France to anyone in order to save his own skin. Bonnier was prepared to take up arms once again if that was what it took to defend his country. We'll talk about Darlan's final weeks with the Allied occupation when we return. Now, back to the story. With the help of 20-year-old Bonnier de la Chapelle and other members of the French Resistance, the Allies launched Operation Torch in November 1942, bringing an end to Vichy France's rule in Algeria. Realizing that his forces were no match for the enemy, 61-year-old Admiral Francois Darlan agreed to a ceasefire. The alliance ensured stability in the region as the war began to shift towards southern Europe. 
With the Allied forces in firm control of over 1,200 miles of Mediterranean and Atlantic coastline, the worst fighting between the warships was now over. President Eisenhower sent General Mark Clark and Ambassador Robert Murphy to present Darlan with terms of surrender at the Hotel San Jorge. Darlan reviewed the terms, his eyes shifting back and forth from the papers to the American generals across from him. He was inclined to agree to the terms, but he explained to Clark and Murphy that he couldn't give them an answer. Pétain was the only one with the proper authority. Darlan took his handkerchief from his pocket and wiped his bald head. The weight of the war was clearly weighing on him. If he surrendered to the Allies, there might be repercussions from Berlin, not to mention from his mentor, Philippe Pétain, who he was directly betraying. But siding with the Americans was the best option for him and for his country. He believed they'd be able to help restore France to how it once existed before the war. He took one last look at the agreement and signed. Known as the Darlan Deal, the agreement directed his chiefs to break off fighting with the Americans. In exchange, under the watchful eye of the Americans, Darlan was appointed High Commissioner in North Africa. He let his current military chiefs retain their commands, except the officers who'd aided the resistance, who he classified as traitors. Darlan wanted everyone to know that disloyalty would be reprimanded. Clark and Murphy were fine with that. The only concern for the Americans was a peaceful transition. Clark asserted he would deal with the man who could do the job, whether it turned out to be Darlan or the devil himself. Eisenhower signed off on the deal, and it was official. French Africa was now in the hands of the Allies and suddenly in the business of killing Nazis. But the Americans hadn't anticipated the blowback against a deal with Darlan. The British Foreign Office declared, We are fighting for international decency, and Darlan is the antithesis of this. American journalist Edward Murrow questioned, What the hell is this all about? Are we fighting Nazis or sleeping with them? Murrow's question was shared by many. To ensure continuity, Darlan still enforced Vichy France's harshest and most repressive laws, such as imprisoning opponents, issuing secret police raids on traitors, and upholding anti-Semitic laws. And news was filtering out of Africa about Darlan's cruel tactics. President Roosevelt insisted that the alliance was only temporary. Darlan was fully aware of this. He responded, I am only a lemon which the Americans will drop after they have squeezed it dry. But with backlash from Washington and the public, Eisenhower regretted signing the deal. He finally said, What I need around here is a damned good assassin. Eisenhower didn't realize how prophetic his words would be. On December 20th, 1942, Young French resistance members from Operation Torch met at the Société des Carburants in Algiers. The item on the agenda was what to do about Admiral Darlan. Even though they'd surrendered to the Allies, Darlan still considered the resistance fighters as an enemy to be squashed. He arrested them on charges of distributing propaganda. He continued to enforce anti-Semitic laws from the Vichy days. Henri Dostier was worried about the direction of the post-invasion government 
both in North Africa and back in France. He said, if these gentlemen cannot make up their minds to govern, we may have to take power by force. For the resistance, the Darlan deal only heightened their beliefs that monarchy was the only salvation for France and its colonies. If Darlan was out of the picture, they believed the Americans would turn to the Count of Paris, who was exiled in Morocco and place him in power. For a while, the resistance believed the Allies would eventually see Darlan's true colors and remove him from power. When they realized that wasn't going to happen, they decided to take matters into their own hands. The time had come to remove Darlan from office, permanently. On November 20th, sticks were drawn to decide who would assassinate Darlan. The shortest stick was quickly drawn. It was Bonnier. The job was planned for December 24th, and the details were given to Bonnier without his input. He was given the official layout of the French government headquarters at the Palais d'Ete and the exact location of Darlan's office. At 11 a.m. on December 24th, he was to walk in Darlan's office, shoot him, and escape through an open window to reach a getaway car waiting for him at the gate. With the proper papers and a passport, he could escape to Tangier or perhaps Southern Europe. The night before he left, Abbé Louis Cordier, a Jesuit priest and Henri Dostier's right-hand man, urged Bonnier to make peace with God. They agreed to meet right before the assassination. The next day, at exactly 10 a.m., Bonnier was taken to a quiet side street near Father Cordier's apartment in Tangier. Bonnier was solemn deep in prayer as he was given absolution for the deed he was about to partake in. At around 11 a.m., Bonnier was dropped off at the Palais d'Ete. It was a bright morning. He entered the building and was immediately stopped by security. The plan had not accounted for that. Improvising, Bonnier gave his name as Mouron. He asked to see someone named Bourette. However, he was told there was no person there by that name. Bonnier heard car wheels on the thick gravel just outside the window. He looked out and saw Admiral Darlan being whisked away for lunch. He'd missed his chance. The only thing he could do now was wait for Darlan to return. Changing plans, Bonnier asked to see Louis Jox, a resistance supporter he had met before. Luckily for him, Louis Jacques actually worked in that building. He was taken to a waiting room until Jacques was ready to see him. With everyone leaving for Christmas, the building was empty. Bonnier was alone in the room. To calm his nerves, he lit a cigarette. He watched the ash form and fall. He adjusted his jacket, which held a 7.65 caliber gun in the pocket. Despite the momentary setback, his mind was centered on his purpose. Admiral Darlan returned to the building around 3 p.m. He entered with his aide, Captain Urkad, who was briefing him on his schedule before he went home for Christmas. As Urkad retired to his office, he was surprised to see that both Darlan's watchman and the doorkeeper were not at their prospective posts. He didn't think much of it. Perhaps they left early for Christmas. Before Darlan entered his office, he was greeted by two bullets from Bonnier's ruby pistol. 
The first shot fired through his mouth at point-blank range, followed by another in the chest. Orcad heard the shots ring out from his office. He went out into the hallway, but there was no one to be seen. Panic washed over him as he walked toward the Admiral's office and found Darlan on the floor, covered in blood. There was a young man hovering over him, Bonnier de la Chapelle. Urquhart instantly grabbed the young man by the throat. They both spun to the ground. As they tussled, Bonnier's gun discharged, hitting Urquhart in the ear. But he kept fighting, grabbing Bonnier and reaching for the gun. Wrenching free from Orcod's grip, Bonnier stood up and shot him in the thigh. It was enough to incapacitate him. Bonnier ran for the window. But before he could get out, an Algerian soldier threw his hat's tassel around Bonnier's neck. Another guard entered and kicked Bonnier's gun from his hand. While the guard subdued Bonnier, Admiral Darlon's colleagues rushed to his aid and carried him into the courtyard. He was conscious, but unable to communicate. They rushed him to the hospital. After what seemed like hours, Darlon's doctor finally emerged from surgery. He announced that the Admiral's liver and intestines had been punctured. There was nothing he could do. Admiral Francois Darlon was dead, leaving North Africa in a power struggle without anyone in command. And as the investigation was underway, the story was about to unravel as to who was really involved in the assassination plot. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two on Admiral Francois Darlan. We'll explore the fallout of his death and discuss Bonnier de la Chapelle's trial and execution. We'll also dive into the conflicting theories as to why Darlan was killed. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Andy Waits with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Assassinations was written by Rini Thomas-Rodriguez with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Thomas.